Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by Friends of the ASC. Get exclusive access at theasc.com. I'm Ian Stasikevich, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. In this episode, cinematographer Marvin Rush ASC talks about his work on the AMC television series Hell on Wheels. Set during the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, Hell on Wheels takes its name from the Union Pacific's itinerant work camp of brothels and saloons and tells the story of the outlaws, lawmen, preachers, prostitutes, and businessmen who traveled with it. This isn't Rush's first time behind the camera for a series centered around an epic human journey. His storied resume boasts cinematography credits for multiple episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. Right now, Hell on Wheels is in production on its fourth season for AMC, and Rush took some time away from prep on its latest episode to talk about his work. So the first three seasons are currently available on Netflix, so that's how I've been watching it. And I have to say, it's a pretty bingeable show. Yeah, I would agree. I actually, you know, I spend time shooting it, and then, you know, usually it's a little while before we start airing. Um, and so I'll sit back and watch the episodes, too. Uh, you know, I try my best to let them kind of disappear from my current memory, you know, where I'm thinking about what I was doing that day when I was shooting it and try to experience it as an audience member. I'm usually pretty successful because it's been a few months, you know, and I've, I've not that I've forgotten the work, but I can, I can sublimate that a little bit and, and watch it. So I, I'm a big fan of the show uh, as an audience member, much, much like the rest of our fans are. It's a, it's a fun, the characters are great. It's a fun show. And uh, Westerns are just, you know, for lack of a better word, they're cool, you know. From your perspective in the audience, what do you want to see out of a show like this? What's exciting to you? Well, you know, I think it relates back to a, a lot of my work in the past. Uh, just to briefly summarize, Star Trek was about ideas. You know, Star Trek was really, uh, you know, more it's science fiction, but it was not more not about technology as much as it was about concepts and ideas that that relate to man's place in the universe and man's. Uh, you know, responsibilities to each other and to, and to other species. I mean, it was a pretty heady show most of the time. And, uh, I mean, there were moments that were fun and there were some shows that were pure adventure. But most of the time, Star Trek was about ideas. And so I think I'm drawn to that. In the area of Hell on Wheels, uh, you know, there's a lot of themes that have been explored. But most of the episodes boil down to, uh, you know, uh, the notion of what is man's place against nature, what is man's place uh, among his fellow man? And, and one of the great questions that Hell on Wheels raised, especially in the early seasons, is uh, this notion that, uh, and it's, it's summarized actually in the pilot of Hell on Wheels, where Durant at the very end has a soliloquy, and he talks about how it, ultimately it takes knaves and, uh, uh, you know, evil venal men to get progress made for, for mankind. And I think that argument is part of the underlying of, you know, that Hell on Wheels is this nasty place and there's lots of evil and there's lots of people taking advantage of others. And out of that crucible, unfortunately, that, that drive of mankind to better himself and take advantage of another, perhaps, is also linked to the, uh, the ability for man to make progress. 
So I, I think that's an interesting theme, and I like that. We've come back to it many times. You're the regular series cinematographer, but you didn't shoot the pilot. That was Elliot Davis. I shot about 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, reshoots on the pilot. Um, so yeah, no, it wasn't my work. But I was re referring back to that scene, which set the tone for the series theme. That's what I was referring to. What is the tone of the show, and how did the pilot set that tone? Well, um, you know, I, I think... I took some inspiration from the pilot, but I did, uh, you know, branch out in my own a little bit. So it's, it's, I would say that the series is more derivative of the pilot, but not totally inspired by it. I, I took some cues, but uh, I, I didn't do everything the same. Uh, but the, photographically, I think what, what marks Hell on Wheels is a embracing and a celebration of the natural world uh, that we have up here in Calgary. Uh, where we shoot the show. There's a lot of weather. There's a lot of dramatic skies. There's, uh, there's muck and mud. I mean, all those things were, in other words, the harshness of the life of the people who did this work, the, the elemental in the mud kind of life that they lived, you know, dirty, smelly, uh, not enough uh, uh, sanitation facilities, just everything about it was harsh and, and largely unpleasant. There weren't a lot of women. The women that were there were mostly whores. So it's it's really just a, you know, an embracing of this harsh reality and, and photographing it from that perspective. If there's a if it's a muddy day and we happen to be shooting, I'm more likely to put the camera down close to the mud and see a wagon splash through it, because I want to remind the audience whenever I get a chance of the of this harshness of this very very difficult world that these people lived and worked in. At the same time, there's some attention paid to the more civilized way of living, like going back to Durant's speech in the pilot, which he makes in the company of a lot of high society people with money, like the upper class. And the light in these scenes, uh, as in the regular series episodes, uh, let's say, uh, is very different. Uh, can you talk a bit about the distinctions you make between these two worlds? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a fair one. Um, you know, this season, uh, bringing it to this season, we're now uh, spending a majority of our time this season in the town of Cheyenne. And Cheyenne was a town built as a, a town in advance of the railroad, knowing that the railroad was coming to that town. So the, the town didn't exist, and some uh, investors and people in the area decided they were going to build a town to receive the railroad. So it's a it's it's a unique thing. Uh, most of the towns were were these you know this mobile town that was coming along building the railroad. But Cheyenne was built specifically for the railroad in advance. So uh, there's a little more of an upscale nature to uh, uh, this town. We have the Palmer Hotel, you know, which is featured prominently in the show. It's the it's the biggest landmark in the town. The, there are solid buildings. The church this year now has wooden sides. You know, it's, so we are moving in terms of lighting style. We're moving towards a little more, um, less temporary housing and more uh, structure. There's a, a comfort house, which is a fancy name for a whorehouse. It's an expensive whorehouse. So again, when we go in there, the lighting is a little more, uh, it's still source lit. I mean, I still am very, very strong on playing natural sources like sunlight and, uh, and strong sunlight through the, through windows, that sort of thing. But it's, uh, it's a little bit more, uh, how shall I say, cultured. And I, I would say that's the nature of it. However, we still have quite a bit of, of tent housing that surrounds the, the town and many of the characters 
uh, you'll see as you watch this coming season, still are living in squalor. So that's part of it. It, it continues. Uh, there's really two tracks. There's the upscale. And of course, Durant in his rail car and other people that in the in the first class rail cars and accommodations, they're, their living is maybe small, but they're opulent. So they have beautiful fittings and furnishings. Again, the lighting reflects the the um, the the interiors that we're in. It's also more controlled and constant, um, it, and more beauteous. And it also seems to wrap a bit nicer. There is an aesthetic difference, but it's not just in the production design. That's that's true. The the, the scenes. I feel like when you look at a scene, when you watch a scene, uh, as a cameraman, you're watching it, you're rehearsing it with the actors, and you're seeing what the director wants to do. You know that the the place and the people and the costumes all uh, tend to dictate a little bit. You know, not completely, because I still play source. In other words, I'm very aware of. You know, if someone stands next to a window, while wow, the light's going to come from that direction. So. Uh, you know, that's that's just, just my personal approach to all of my lighting in my whole career is to, to reflect and honor uh, natural sources. Someone walks next to a lantern, you know, if there is a candle and that's what's on, the candle lights the scene. I mean, those are those are things that are constants in my work. Uh, but how you modify that light, how you uh, control it. I mean, I try to make the girls look pretty. That's something I, I, I've always wanted to do in every show I've been on. I, I I I try my best to uh, uh, show women in a in a in a favorable light, except when there's some real extreme moment. Otherwise, I I you know I I do a bit of beauty lighting for the girls. Try to make it look like it's totally natural, but the truth is there's there's a fair amount of beauty lighting going on uh, for the girls almost every time. One thing I've noticed about the show is that it doesn't seem to be very romantic about the old west. Yeah, we embrace the natural world in the way that it is. One of the things that happens here in Calgary, uh, and I, I jokingly say to anybody that'll pay attention, but we have five different weather conditions every day, and and that's uh, that's pretty remarkable. It can be uh, crystal clear in the morning uh, by uh, ten o'clock; it's overcast. Uh, by noon, we're having rain showers and high winds, and uh, uh, you know by five or six p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, Late afternoon, it's overcast again. And then right before sunset, the sun pops out and we have this beautiful God light coming across the scene. And, and so <laughs> we, we shoot a lot of exteriors and those things I cannot control or change. So I, I have to embrace them, So uh, uh, w which is fine. But the point I'm making is that, that we, we celebrate the world, the natural world that we're given and we play into what is actually there. And uh, we, we can't wait for light. Our, our schedule won't allow for that. So um, the art and trick of it is to make sure that what you're doing uh, harmonizes with the natural world that is being delivered to you without your choosing it. What's the schedule like on this show? The, the, uh, the show shoots uh, 42 and a half minutes in eight shooting days. And eight shooting days is generally 11-hour days. Now, in, in our industry, 12-hour uh, days are basically standard. But because we have a 45-minute commute from the downtown area where most of the people live uh, on the crew to the location in Albertina, we've, we've gone to an 11-hour shooting day just because if you try for more, you wear people out and, and that won't work. And in a short term, you can get away with it. But long term, you know, you burn your crew up and then nobody's life is any fun. Everybody's angry and bitter and, you know. Uh, dissipated, <laughs> you know. So, so eleven-hour days are critical for us, and so that's what we—that's we do. Eight, eleven-hour days. How many days turnaround between episodes? Zero. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I finish an episode on a Wednesday and Thursday, I'm starting the next episode. So there's no, there is no turnaround. We work five days a week. I typically work on the weekends a fair amount because I'll go out on location with the director of the next episode and go through the show with him, uh, looking at the sets and, and discussing various ways to shoot it. And, you know, that's another thing that's, I think, interesting. I don't um, uh, lock directors down into some formulaic style. If a director comes in and wants to do an episode a certain way because he feels this story's best told that way, you know, we do it. Uh, we're, so that the episodes are not uh, formulaic in terms of style of shooting or photography. Uh, and I think that's very evidence this year. Uh, each director has come in with a very different approach to st storytelling. And, uh, you know, I just find a way to keep it consistent to some extent while being able to embrace the new director's uh, vision. Do you work with any visual references, uh, like such as photos or, or paintings of the Old West, maybe other films? You know, I looked at uh, actually some classic Westerns uh, before I started the series. This is back four years ago. And one of the things that I, I tried to do uh, consistently and have done consistently is, um, and I think the, the film that best exemplifies it is The Searchers. But I, what, I, what I wanted to do was to make it so that the balance between day exterior outside, either in a tent flap or out through a window or whatever, was balanced and harmonized with the lighting levels on the interiors so that you could have someone walk from outside full sun to inside a rail car and it, it looked like uh, there was no lighting done at all. In other words, the, the balance between the two was such that it really didn't look like the cameraman had done anything. And uh, uh, that, that was an, an attempt to, to create a sense of reality, of veritas. Now, a lot of times a, a director of photography will put a cut in when someone walks from sunlight into shade or sunlight into an interior. And then the, there's a totally different lighting from the inside to the outside. And uh, I just don't like doing that. I really like uh, using, uh, you know, using some modern technology to be able to bring the interiors up into balance uh, so that they, they just don't look lit. What kind of modern technology are we talking about? Well, we've been using a lot of LED lighting lately. This technology has been developing over the past four years. And uh, uh, there's a lamp, a specific light I use a lot of called a MacTech. It's basically an LED, it's a rack of LED uh, tubes that are kind of like fluorescent tubes, but they're LEDs and they're, they're dimmable, they're daylight balanced, they're very thin and they put out a lot of light. So I can balance, you know, outside and speaking in photographic terms, if you look outside on a sunny day, it could be, you know, F22 outside, really bright. And in the interior of a rail car might be F28. So there's, uh, you know, five or six stops of, of light difference, five or six doublings of the light difference between the outside and the inside. So in order to make that work, you need to bring the inside up. Uh, you can, obviously you can't make the sun darker. So, so you have to bring the inside up into balance so that there's a, a closer differential between those two. And uh, a rail car is a small space. So you can't take walls out. Uh, I mean, in theory you could, but we, we don't because we don't have time for that. So it, it requires very powerful, uh, small lights that can be hidden inside the interiors and look like they're coming from natural places, natural directions, uh, the windows, etc. But in fact, are either hidden or sometimes just outside of the frame that bring up the interior balance to uh, to look like uh, there is no lighting whatsoever. And uh, you know, there's an art to that, and it's something I've practiced over the years. 
I did it on Star Trek and I, I do it on this show, but I've really embraced it more fully on Hell on Wheels. And I'm proud of that work. I think we achieve a pretty high level of reality um, in our work. And you're not concerned at all that these newer lighting technologies might not create a period accurate quality of light? You know, the, the, the thing we do with the MacTex, as an example, is we put some diffusion filters on them to make them look like soft uh, window light coming in from the side, as an example. Um, and they, uh, with a little bit of diffusion, the advantage of them, they're thin. So they don't take up a lot of physical space. They also don't generate much heat. So uh, in, a, in a confined uh, rail car in the middle of summer up here, you know, the actors would walk in and if I was using HMIs or tungsten lighting, they would, they would be 125, 130 degrees inside that rail car. They'd be sweating the minute they walked in. With the LED lighting, I can, you know, I can do the work without generating much heat at all and get a balance that's, uh, that's beautiful. And it's been getting easier because these tools keep evolving. There's newer tools every season and we've been tracking this, uh, you know, getting new equipment to help us do it. So that's exciting. You know, you, when you have a, you know, the old way of doing things, perhaps you did, you know, for 30 years in my case, and then you bump into some new technology that is like better tools that do, allow you to do things in a new way. You know, I mean, some people, I suppose, you know, reject it and go, well, I'll just go with tried and true. In my case, I'm really a fan of technology. So if I see something new that I think will help me, not just because it's new, but it's better, then I'll I immediately go to it. And uh, we've embraced that. We've done a lot of that th this season and last season, especially uh, with this transition to LED lighting. Um, not everything's LED. We still use HMIs. We still use... Um, all kinds of things. I mean, all kinds of equipment. And we've also built some lights. Uh, I've actually taken some household LED fixtures, disassembled them along with the help of my gaffer, uh, Dave Vernere, and we've invented some lights that were specific for certain applications using uh, cannibalized home LED lighting. And it's been uh, very effective. So it's, you know, I'm getting, I think we're getting in the weeds here technically, but Believe me, uh, it makes a difference in terms of comfort with actors wearing big, heavy costumes. They walk inside a tiny rail car, and it's not blazing hot. It, it helps us. It helps them do their job. It helps us get our work done. Now, you're shooting Hell on Wheels with the Aria Alexa, and I'm wondering if uh, you can get what a lot of people consider maybe a period-accurate or a genre-specific look with a digital camera, uh, considering that pretty much all of the iconic Westerns of the past were photographed on film stock. Well, I think, first of all, let's consider the fact that in 1876 or 7, when we were at where we're at, there was no film cameras. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess if if you were going to be period accurate, we would have to shoot daguerreotypes and then rephotograph the daguerreotypes so the audience could see it. I mean, it, it's a I think it is on its face a a false argument. Um, we're using uh, the, a state of the art camera technology to capture an image, to tell a story, and we're using the best technology available, I think, to do it. Um, our audience is remarkably sophisticated. If you think about the, the, the television audience and movie audience as well, uh, how many hundreds of thousands of hours of programming have they watched in their lifetime? You know, a person that's 40 years old, 35, 40 years old, has seen thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of television. And they have, they are, they are a sophisticated audience. Um, in the case of the Alexa and digital imaging in general, you know, the image uh, is manipulated in post-production to give certain characteristics. 
the camera records a fairly neutral, um, unbiased recording. And you impart onto it, you know, things like lighting techniques, which create style. Uh, the contrast you light with creates a certain amount of style. The camera you use, the lenses, the camera positions, all those things contribute to it. And then finally, the color timing process, which is downstream, can impart a remarkable change to that essentially neutral image that's been recorded. Um, what you end up with is a very much manipulated signal to get the right look or the one that the producers and the cameraman and the director want to give the audience the right you know, frame of mind to place them in that location and scene. I, I don't think that Alexa per se is... It, first of all, I'm a big fan of the camera because it, it, it makes my job easier and it records very faithfully a good image. It's got lots of malleability to it. But I don't think the Alexa itself is imparting very much at all. I think it's all the other things we do are what make the image. And the camera is, is not what the audience is watching. They're watching the result of all of our efforts. What kind of look and feel did you want to convey with your lens choices? Well... Um, I use the uh, the Zeiss series lenses that Aeroflex produces, and uh, I, I like them because they they're first of all they're they're very matched. The lenses are, are are photographically matched. The focal lengths jump at you know very even predictable amounts. So there's a very good supply of a, a, a grouping rather of, of focal lengths to tell a story with. The the Zeiss lenses when they flare, and we oftentimes will put the sun in the shot, they flare. I don't know how to describe it other than this. They flare beautifully. Uh, whereas an example, uh, some other lenses, when you get a flare, it's, it's distracting. And uh, especially in the case of a zoom lens, uh, the, the zoom lenses, when they flare, they're usually kind of ugly. I mean, in my opinion, that's a taste position, I'll, I'll say. But the Zeiss lenses, when they flare, they're just gorgeous and predictable. They do it a certain way. So uh, they're also very fast. They, they're very sensitive to light and uh, they're, uh, they're sharp. So to me, that's, those are the characteristics I like, um, in the lenses. Now I've played a little bit with some other brands, but I've been fairly loyal over my career. So this was something, uh, it's kind of, uh, something that I'm familiar with. I like, and I've, I've used them over and over again and with good success. Uh, I, I know lots of people like the master primes and there are other, you know, that cook series and there's other series of lenses. I, you know, honestly, I don't have that much experience with them. Um, uh, you know, I, I know that there's more than one way to get it done. I, I'm used to and familiar with these, and I like them. So that's that's kind of the end of that discussion, really, for me. Do you use any filtration on the show? You know, years ago, I used lots of filters, um, uh, glass filters in front of the lens. And I've gone away from that uh, in, since I started uh, Hell on Wheels because uh, there are digital filters that are available that can be applied uh, in a much more discreet way. I'll give you an example. Let's say I would like to diffuse an actress's face a little bit to make her uh, look prettier, just to give give her a little more softness uh, in a scene. But I do not want to take the background down. I don't want the trees or the sky or the clouds to be uh, uh, diffused at all. I want them to be crystal clear and sharp. I can have a digital filter applied in post-production to just the actress's face and not to anything else. And, uh, you know, uh, this is a much more discreet tool and uh, a, a very relatively easy to do. So I shoot, uh, you know, and this is the big difference with digital. I think this is one of the areas where 
Digital has changed the way we work. Uh, I'm not shooting for the final result on set. I'm shooting for the color timing bay to give me the, the flexibility that I want and need in, in color timing so that uh, Stephen Porter, my colorist, and I uh, can get the exact result we want uh, in the final copy without uh, altering it um, irrevocably while we're shooting. So I have some adjustability and, and time to uh, manipulate the image in the post process. This, I think, is the modern way to do things. It's not the way I used to do it by any means, but times have changed and tools have changed and the workflow has changed. So I, I'm in, I embrace the, the new workflow. I'm not stuck in the past. Your work takes advantage uh, of the full 178 to 1 HDTV aspect ratio. How does shooting for television affect your composition? Well, I think one of the things that television in general uh, in recent years, let's say the past 15 years, uh, has been the move to more and more close-ups. And I don't mean Westerns now. I'm talking about just television in general. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at classic movies from the past, the close-up was not employed as frequently. It was a, a, a more sparing thing. Now, probably part of that was each setup took a lot of time and, you know, uh, uh, cameras were not as light and flexible. So maybe, you know, it took extra time to do a close-up so people didn't do them except where they needed them. But I also think from a standpoint of telling a story, if you go to the close-up immediately in a scene and you re rely on the close-up to tell the story, uh, there's a couple good reasons to do that. You don't have any sets to show. <laughs> that would be a reason. Or you don't have any imagination in storytelling. And I think that's a more common problem. Uh, not in our show. I want to be clear. Uh, I'm, I'm making a case for how you should approach this work. Uh, to me, the close-up is a punctuation mark. And if you look at classic movies, a lot of things play in a wider shot. A lot of things play in a wider frame. The, the audience has a chance to study what's going on besides the main action, uh, and they, it, it gives them a sense of place and you know, activity that's happening in the scene. And then you know, as things progress in a scene, oftentimes you get to the close-up toward the end of the scene. That's, that would be a classic way of doing it. Now, you can reverse that as well. You can start a scene on a close-up and then suddenly jump back out. But the point I'm making is if you immediately go to close-ups and rely on them only, you're, I think, robbing the audience of the, the chance to enjoy the story in a, in a more grand way, more cinematic way, and then also you're using the close-up so often that they, it loses its punch, that it doesn't have as much import. Now, coming back to your original question, I believe Hell on Wheels, and I think Westerns in general, are especially they especially benefit from scope and from the wide screen format, 16 by 9, seeing uh, you know, a wide view and taking in a lot of detail in the shot. And, and uh, we're not relying on the close-up as much as maybe some other types of shows. So we do that. Um, it's not an accident. Uh, I want the shows to, have, to breathe a bit and to have a lot of scope and uh, uh, sense of place. Now why 16 by 9? Well, I, you know, AMC, uh, this is one of the beauties of working for AMC. Uh, they absolutely are not interested in 4x3 at all. They don't air it in 4x3. They don't have a crop. They simply air everything they have in 16x9. And so uh, we are not forced, like some network shows, I think even to this day, 
this may have gone away now, but in, in past network shows that I did, uh, we had to compose for 4x3 and 16x9. And what that does is it, it shoehorns uh, a, a beautiful composition into a, a tighter box while still having to film the 16x9 frame. Neither one of them are very satisfying. So in the case of, of AMC and Hell on Wheels and other shows on AMC, uh, the, the cameramen and the directors and producers were only making uh, 16 by 9 as our default. That's the that's it. So I'll frame something right to the limits of 16 by 9, knowing that if someone were to watch the show in 4 by 3, it wouldn't look very good. But I don't care because the network doesn't care because the network is buying 16 by 9 and they're embracing it fully. And as a side note, when I've worked on network shows, I over the years I've gotten notes, you know, from the network. In the case of AMC, they've left me alone. I mean, I think they like what I do, and uh, and they uh, they simply have, you know, anytime they've ever said anything, it says just you know make a big movie, you know, shoot it like a movie, and and that's that's why I love working for them, <laughs> and I mean that sincerely because and I'm doing another show for them too. I'm doing a show called Turn, which is a Revolutionary War uh, drama, and. You know, um, the same thing applies. We're making a 16 by 9 widescreen cinematic styled television show. That jives with the stories I've heard about AMC encouraging their showrunners to take a more cinematic approach to television. And I'm wondering in what other ways that applies to your work uh, with Hell on Wheels. Yeah, uh, well, I guess an example would be, uh, you know, cranes. You know, uh, uh, we carry a crane on the show. We carry it. We've had it all season long. In previous seasons, we've had them almost every day, but not always. This year, we have a crane every single day. So if I see a shot that would be better played on a crane shot, uh, sweeping it from a close-up all the way up to a big wide master uh, and doing it regularly, well, we do it that way. And uh, directors are encouraged to use that tool. Well, that's a cinematic tool. I mean, a crane is a, you know, is I think it's rare for TV shows to carry one, and we carry it all the time. Uh, and and it's uh, so it's a cinematic tool. We have a Steadicam. We carry it all the time. We we use it whenever we think that'll help us tell a, a cinematic story, letting a shot play, letting a camera move through through the through the terrain. We do a lot of dolly shots. I mean, I think other shows do this as well. But in our case, uh, we're we're interested in telling the story with the moving camera, and then that's a cinematic approach. It's it's much more so than. Popping, you know, a master and then popping close up, close up, close up, close up, ad infinitum and next scene. That's, you know, that's somewhat of a default on some shows and, and not on ours. Where do you do your post-production for the show? MTI is the, is the color company. Stephen Porter is the colorist, the man who does the work. And uh, he and I, you know, uh, work closely together. He, he, he's really a right-hand man for me. Uh, and, you know, we initially, early on, we corresponded a, a great deal about the look of the show. Since we've now established and worked together for now four seasons, uh, that dialogue has dropped off because he knows the show as well as I do, and he does wonderful work. So um, I just, I'll give him a note. Sometimes it's nothing more than a compliment, you know, but, uh, but we've worked together closely and built together, built the look of the show. So that's done in L.A. The editorial is split. There's uh, an editorial office here in Calgary, and one of our editors lives here. Um, and uh, uh, then uh, we have a, a couple, I think three other editors, two other editors, I forget, in Los Angeles. And the writer's room is in Los Angeles. And the writers uh, come up occasionally and producers come up back and forth from time to time. Uh, but majority of the post is, is done in Los Angeles and Hollywood. Now, when you say Calgary, you're talking about Alberta, Canada, right? 
Yeah, the production side of it is based in Calgary. And really, uh, the advantages, there's lots of advantages here, but the, the biggest advantage, they have an awful lot of Western people. The Calgary Stampede is a world-renowned rodeo, and, and it's here right in the middle of the city every summer. And many of the people that, that are involved in rodeo work work on our show. So we've got a large staff of wranglers and you know, uh, cowboys and such that, that are, they really know their stuff. They've done a lot of movies. They know exactly how to get things done uh, for filmmaking and filmmaking a Western specifically. So, uh, and then we have this beautiful location that is, uh, well, you've seen it. It's spectacular. Uh, you know, as far as the eye can see, uh, nothing but prairie and river and mountains and, and uh, <laughs> rolling hills and, you know, no farmland in the shot. And, uh, you know, there's only a couple of buildings we can see from our location, which we paint out. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's completely pristine and, and absolutely like the terrain where they built the railroad. Where do you find the time to get involved with the color grade, being the primary series cinematographer? Well, it, how it happens, uh, you know, the first season we finished all the shows and the show wrapped. And I was living at that time in Los Angeles as well. I've since moved from L.A. But at that time I was living in L.A. So the color timing started up, uh, you know, just barely overlapped the finish of production here in Calgary when I... Uh, got home in Los Angeles, I went over to Stephen Porter's suite at MTI and, and we sat together and we went through the episodes. Uh, I would spend a day with him going through all episodes in season one and really honing in on what is and what is not the look of Hell on Wheels um, with his help. <clears throat> and so that first season, I personally supervised every single episode that I did. Uh, the pilot I only did you know, really just to, to look to make sure the work I was doing matched the pilot's look. But all the other episodes I sat in on, uh, consulted on, and, and helped to create that look. Season two, uh, it was more uh, sending files to me while I was up here in Calgary, watching them on my, uh, my Apple uh, computer, um, making notes, uh, talking back and forth with Stephen, then seeing the corrections from those notes. Season three, you know, it's gotten to a point where on season three and season four now where there's very little in the way of notes because so much of the look of the show has been established and we're not using a new person. It's the same person who's working from the same set of, of aesthetic uh, values to create a continuing show. So, you know, that's the beauty of when you work with somebody a long time, you have, you know, you really don't have a lot to say. It's, it becomes second nature. You've done it so much. You know, we're going to be, we'll have done, what, 43 episodes together at the end of this season. Well, that's a large body of work. Um, he knows exactly what I'm thinking. I mean, he really does. So, so the, the first season was a lot of hands-on, the second season a little bit less, and it has progressed from there. Now, you've done your fair share of directing, uh, specifically talking about Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Do you plan on directing an episode of Hell on Wheels? Yeah, it's funny you ask that. Uh, when we decided, uh, when they invited me to come back for season four this year, I asked the producers if they would consider me for an episode. And, uh, you know, they kicked it around for a couple of days and they called me back and said, yeah, we'd like you to do one. So as, as it turns out, just by coincidence, I'm sitting here today finishing the prep on my first Hell on Wheels episode, which will be episode nine. And I start shooting it this coming Monday. 
So uh, I, I am directing an episode, and I'll be starting uh, on Monday, and it'll be episode nine. And, you know, uh, let's see how I do. I hope the fans like what I've got. It's a pretty interesting episode, but I'm not going to tell you anything about it because I want it to be a surprise. But it's, it's, uh, it's pretty ambitious. Um, it involves gunfire. How about that? That's, that's all I'm going to say. Who's going to be your cinematographer? My, the cinematographer for me on my episode is Tom Burston. And Tom uh, came to us. He actually is is finishing up shooting the episode that, that was done while I was prepping because the, the director prepares for an episode and then shoots the next episode. So uh, the net effect is I had to miss two episodes uh, uh, because I was prepping my episode while one was shooting and then now Tom will, will be the cinematographer for my episode. But Michael Nankin had directed episode 205 in season two. Uh, which was this big shootout episode, and he did a great job. And he wasn't available last season, and so that, but they invited him back this year. And when he heard that I wasn't going to be available, um, he su suggested Tom because they had just worked on a series together. So I interviewed Tom on the phone, and the producers did, and we talked to him, and it seemed like it was a good mix. And he was very uh, familiar with the director, uh, Michael Nankin, who, as I say, was directing uh, the current episode. So that was an easy choice. And so I've had a chance to talk to Tom and look at his work and uh, he's doing a great job. So uh, he'll be, he'll be the cinematographer for my episode. And then when he finishes that and I finish directing, I'll go back to being the DP uh, for the rest of the season. It'll be episodes uh, 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 10, 11, 12, and 13. Cause we're doing 13 this year instead of uh, 10. Now as a director, what kind of prep are you doing with Tom? Yeah. Uh, I had asked him to watch some episodes to get a feel for the show we uh, walked the sets before he started, and I, I talked about the sets that he was going to be shooting and just, you know, some of the things that I had done. I, you know, of course, most of the crew, um, in fact, all the crew is the same. He's the new guy. So uh, I said, you know, you could discuss with the gaffer, who's, the, you know, the, basically the head electrician on the show, who, you know, is help, helps to do all the lighting. And uh, uh, Dave Verner is his name. And my, my key grip um, uh, as well. And they... Uh, they would be able to help him match, you know, the work so it would have its own style. But I also told him, I said, you know, you have to do things your way. You know, it's, it's ridiculous to try to, you know, copy me. Uh, that, that doesn't really work. Every cameraman has things that they do that are different than the next guy. And I said, you know, you, you need to take ownership of the work and do it the way you want to. Uh, but, you know, if you've seen the episodes, at least you have a sense of the flavor. And I, I mean, I suspect the show will have a slightly different look. Uh, it, 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 it should. Uh, anybody that, approaches the work as an artist and uh, you know there's not two Picassos I mean not to put too high a, a, a spin on it but the truth is artists are artists they do what they do because they see the world the way they see it and they we all use a lot of the same tools but the results are different um, and that's okay so I'm sure an a, a, a observant audience member will see a difference and they may like things better or they may not like it as, as well um, that's again that comes down to taste uh, but Tom's an experienced guy. He's done a lot of good work. And uh, I'm looking forward to working with him in this capacity. That was Marvin Rush ASC talking about his work on the AMC television series, Hell on Wheels. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging on to theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers. 
a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 